Abolition. Abolition. When I would be on Rachel's show as a correspondent at curfew time in Baltimore when I was covering the Freddie Gray uprisings, Mm. and these were mass marches um, that were in, in regard to police taking Freddie Gray's body and treating it like a rag doll and flinging him into the back of a police van and then riding around with him unshackled in that van until the rag doll broke and he died. And he died alone in the back of a car being brutalized for no reason other than making eye contact with police as he rode his bike. And the uprisings um, that took place after Freddie Gray brought in what a, a level of policing that I've never witnessed ever in life. It looked like a war zone. Police brought in tanks. They brought in body armor. They were wearing full body armor rubber suits where they almost looked robotic, full gear, enormous, powerful weaponry. And they were phalanx out all across Baltimore, Penn and North. They were standing menacingly waiting to brutalize anyone who even looked at them funny. The level of force, the level of just almost indiscriminate rudeness, cruelty, hardness of those police officers and at curfew time, which would be nine o'clock, and then almost every night during that uprising, at some point I would go on with you, Rachel, and describe to you what I was seeing, and it was terrifying. And what terrified me in those moments in Baltimore were not the marchers. I was never afraid among the marchers. The marchers just wanted justice. They just didn't think it was okay to just kill a guy because he looked at the police funny. I was afraid of them. I was afraid of the cops because they were menacing. They knew those marchers were coming every night. They knew there was going to be a curfew every night. The great Elijah Cummings would walk people home and get them to go home because he didn't want them out after curfew. But there would always be some guys who would stay out after the curfew, who would refuse to go home, who would claim the right to be in their streets. And I was never afraid of them. I was afraid of the cops. The reason, as Claire talked about, that these people were so unafraid of the cops who were sparsely distributed through our capital, which hasn't been breached since 1812, when it was burned. The reason they could easily and casually, with their cameras on, film themselves throwing things through the walls of our capital, our property, going inside the capital, sitting in uh, Speaker Pelosi's office, casually take pictures of themselves, have that played on Fox News, they know that they are not in jeopardy. Because the cops are taking selfies with them, walking them down the steps to make sure they're not hurt, taking care with their bodies, not like they treated Freddie Gray's body. White Americans aren't afraid of the cops. White Americans are never afraid of the cops, even when they're committing insurrection, even when they're engaged in attempting to occupy our capital to steal the votes of people who look like me. Because in their minds, they own this country, they own that capital, they own the cops, the cops work for them, and people like me have no damn right to try to elect a president. Because we don't get to pick the president. They get to pick the president. They own the president. They own the White House. They own this country. And so when you think you own it, you own the place, you ain't afraid of the police because the police are you. And the police reflect back to them. We're with you. You're good. We're not going to hurt you because you're not them. 
guarantee you if that was a Black Lives Matter protest in D.C., there would already be people shackled, arrested, or dead. I've been low, I've been high, I've been sold all my life. I've got nothing left to pay. I've got nothing left to say. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white. I'm in love, but I'm still sad. I found peace, but I'm not glad. On my nights and on my days, I've been trying wrong. I'm a black man in a white world. 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 Feel like I've been here before. I feel that knocking on my door. I feel like I. Kevin Piner is heard telling Corporal Jesse Moore that the protest would soon lead to a civil war and that he is ready. He goes on to tell Moore that he was going to buy a new assault rifle and soon we are just going to go out and start slaughtering them expletive inverts. Piner says a civil war is needed to wipe them off the expletive map. That'll put them back about four or five generations.
Hold on for a second. Let me make sure I got my mic open. Yes, I do. All right. You just heard a Max Mix titled A White World with opening commentary by Joy Reid, followed by Michael Kiwanaku's Black Man in a White World and a soundbite from the genocidal Wilmington, North Carolina police in 2020. The same city that committed insurrection in November of 1898 when 2,000 white men expelled black and white political leaders destroying the property of the city's black residents and killed dozens, if not hundreds, of people. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. My name is Max Parthas, and except for my guest tonight, I'm riding solo. As our listeners know, last week Yusuf was very sick. He went to the doctor Friday, and I haven't heard from him since. So send out your good vibes and prayers that our brother will recover. In episode two of season two, We know why the caged bird screams, and he'll tell you himself tonight. We'll examine the deadly systemic conditions of the currently enslaved and the daily fight for survival they wage. We'll be joined by guest Benu Hannibal Rasan, one of the leaders of the Free Alabama Movement and a core architect of the National Prison Slave Labor Work Strikes. A member of the Gadsden Six, Benu is currently doing life without parole sentence in Alabama. He has been subject to systemic torture and abuse due to his organizing efforts inside prisons, successful organizing efforts that have garnered international media and activist attention. In 2021, he spearheaded the National Freedom Movement. He'll tell us about that shortly. The news currently a host of the weekly podcast sponsored by Abolition Today titled Live from the Plantation. Archives are available at www.abolitiontoday.org. We'll also incorporate current events from a slavery abolitionist's perspective, some of which you already heard regarding revenge of the racist nerds when the KKK Comic Con came to the nationals, the nation's capital. And of course, we've got music, spoken word, and the voices of our ancestors reclaimed with our Bridging the Gap segment. Stay with us. At the close of tonight's program, we have a gift. The late, great Chadwick Boseman reads from the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. All right, man. So here we are, Abolition Today. And I got to tell you, these past couple of days have been a little bit mind-blowing uh, here. Uh, literally, an insurrection was attempted at the Capitol. And I know my brother Benu wants to get in on the conversation with that, too. So I'm going to just go ahead and bring him right in. Benu, welcome back to Abolition Today. Hey, Max, thanks a lot for, for having me. It's always an honor and a privilege to be on here. Um, tonight I'm able to share the platform with you. Uh, good vibes and best delicious um, to Brother Yusef. Uh, as you said, he's in, in the hospital right now. We all know that you know everyone is subject to something in these times with this pandemic and the way that society. So we hope for the best. I'm not going to try to speculate or nothing like that on what situation may be, but everyone is aware that these are some, some perilous times for us all. Um, I was listening to the opening, heard the, the lady speaking, and, and, and I was, she just put me in, she, two things came to mind, the miseducation of the Negro, 
and the Willie Lynch speech. And she was talking about how when white people look at each other, they have an understanding of how they feel about this. Like she was describing how they felt about their relationship to this to this country and how they owned it and how they were how they were all together. And so I thought about the the Willie Lynch speech and the miseducation of the Negro because you know as African people, descendants of Africans, we know who we are. Um, we also have a, a shared understanding when we look at each other. But the problem is, as Carter Wilson said, in the double-minded country, a lot of us are looking at each other through the eyes and perspective of other people. And those other people don't have us looking at each other the way that they look at each other amongst themselves. And so I thought about that, and I thought about how they sprinkle that in with the, the Willie Lynch um, speech, the, the, the different things that they use to turn us against each other and stuff. And so this stuff going on at the Capitol, like you said, I mean, I don't have as much access to information as you do and some of the other listeners do, um, but every day I'm seeing more and more of the images. And it, it started out, it looked like a frat party. And so when they were showing the videos and the officers telling the people, come on, come on, come in this way, and I'm like, I'm still in. So I didn't grasp the magnitude of it. And then the next day, I look up and I see people climbing across the wall, and I'm thinking that this is the border wall, and then I find out that this went on in the Capitol. Um, and then we saw the officers open the doors and allow them into the building, and then they're in there doing all this stuff. And so um, for me, it was just, it was mind-blowing. It was mind-boggling. But I learned later that they were just starting to say it was an uh, insurrection and stuff, that this actually went on like this, you know. And then I'm just thinking the contrast of what we're going through as a people in this country, uh, what our experiences are uh, with the police, um, you know, how we would have been treated. The, the sister who was murdered up there by the same Capitol Police was simply getting lost. And making a U-turn to go to the White House, so it was just—it's a mix, it's a wide range of emotions. Um, and the thing about it, like I said, is that when I—I'm I'm looking at what I saw initially, and what I have—I have seen up to today, and just to think about how it continues to grow, and how the story continues to get larger, and how we're starting to learn about how certain of them uh, beat the police, and seeing the video of the woman being shot by police—I mean. You have to to start to understand that as much as we talk about 2020, 2021, I believe, from a political perspective, that, you know, that there's no limit to what we may or may not see in 2021 from from, from the political side. So I just wanted to share those things, Matt. Um, So I'm going to turn it back over to you because, like I said, that conversation, of course, we're going to talk about it a little further in the show, but those are just my initial thoughts on that in the opening clip that you had. I appreciate that, brother. You are very insightful, as always. Uh, one of the things that did stand out for me, and she was right and correct in just about everything that she was saying, had that been uh, black people, there would not only have been a massacre at uh, D.C., but also they would have started rounding us up, literally with something like a paper bag fucking uh, test to see just how dark we are. Um that's the type of environment we would have had to endure, just like they did with the Japanese internment during World War II. Uh, but what she, one thing she said stood out for me and reminded me who was talking to Joy Reid. And she said, our house is burning. And I had to think of Malcolm. 
in the house in the field Negro speech where he's saying, you know, the master, like, our house is on fire. <laughs> is we sick, master? You know, so that part kind of stood out for me. But like you, I had two perspectives. First, we knew this was coming. Um, I told people about it last week on this program, that they were on their way there and what they were about. Everybody knew it. There was no secret. They were doing it out in the open, and they were grossly underestimated. Not only were the right-wing racist white supremacists grossly underestimated, but so was their similar ideology uh, president, who orchestrated all of this. And he did it through... This is how these guys play, man. He did it through a group, a woman's group called Women for America First. They were the ones that got the permit, said it was 5,000 people showing up, then changed it to 30,000 people showing up. And the visuals I saw today that had been captured, I saw a policeman beaten to death by a wild mob, like literally a policeman beaten to death with flags and pipes. And at one point, he was hit with a fire extinguisher, which they believe may be the cause of his death. But they was ready for blood, and they beat the cop to death. I saw a cop shoot the woman in the, in the neck who was trying to get in. I saw other cops be overwhelmed and uh, beaten on. And I saw this huge crowd shoving against what little bit of riot squad they had there. This one little, one cop was caught between the door and the rioters, the, the insurrectionists. And the police behind him, and he was screaming in pain because they had tore off his mask and was gouging at his face. These are who went to the White House. This is the president's supporters, and make no mistake about it. Yeah, it was about 30,000 people, but if it had been a million, Trump wouldn't be stepping down today because they were doing exactly what he told them to do over and over and over again. Uh, So, And then you have to think about this also. These are the people that's deciding your fate, Benu. They decide the fate of millions of us all the time. They think they have the moral authority to decide who lives and who dies, who goes to prison, who don't go to prison, who gets ticket, who don't get ticket, who gets to do this, who don't get to do that. They think they own everything, like Joy said. Uh, I'm going to pass it to you with that. Well, another thing, you know, um, I think it was in Missouri. I can't remember exactly that case, but there was like seven or eight people. They were charged under the gang enhancement laws for spray painting the steps to the prosecutor's office. And these people are facing a life sentence. They were part of the protest, I think, from the George Floyd protest or something. But that's all they did was spray paint it in red, and they were charged with gang. I haven't saw them use a gang law in any of these uh, people who are being charged right now. And that's just one of the things that stood out to me. Another thing that stood out to me was the fact that we learn that this infrastructure of white supremacy and this ideology is interconnected throughout every sector of the government. I mean, literally, the Capitol Police were part of this. And so I think that people have to look at it. it, it there, there's too many, there's so many things to look at. And it's very important for us as, as, as African people to study all of this and get the lessons out of it. You know, this is not something that we can afford to allow to simply scroll down our, 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 our Facebook feeds or Twitter feeds or whatnot. We have to study this because there are so many things to learn about that event and how that whole process took place. But the, the, the police force, I think, was really put on the, on the forefront. Um, 
the, the the request for the National Guard was made to come in. That was denied by the State Department, not by the President, or not just by the President, but also by the State Department. So the the layers of this thing, the the, the way that they're all interconnected um, ideologically, um, it was just fascinating to see. And the reason why I use the word fascinating because I always think when I see these people do this, like, what if we came together like that? You know, not if we necessarily share their ideologies or all of it, but just, just, just if we share the, the, the us first. You know, what I'm saying because that's what they're saying. They are putting themselves above anybody. They are putting their possessions and ownership above anybody. They don't care who like it. They don't care who got a problem with it. They're not trying to share. They're saying that you know, what I'm saying, and so if we guarded our assets, our our mind our community, our culture, our heritage, like that. But that's the reason why they took it away from us, because they didn't want us, like, united like that. They didn't want us to be able to to to, to move like that and to be able to move all the way up inside of the, the, the pillars of, of government of this country. This, that's one of the highest stations of government in this country, the, the U.S. Capitol. And you have the White House. And then you have the United States people. Those are the pillars of the, the three branches of government of this nation. I think people need to just be reminded of that, that this government structure is legislative, executive, and judicial branches. And these people were, were right up here in the, in the nation's capital um, carrying out, uh, you know, what was it? Like you said, you made the point that you were aware of, you weren't people, but the people who were not aware or even the people who were aware that was like, that, that, like, no, they're not gonna. You can't do this. These, we know what the five power military power of this country is. We know what a normal police force looks like, a joint task force. We know what kind of firepower they can muster. And then you call them national guard. So even people who knew that they were thinking like this and talking like this, no one, I think, not a lot of people could conceive that it would go to the, the extreme descriptions that you just gave and what we've seen on the news and stuff. I don't think that people could fathom that um, prior to. But now having seen these things, I think we need to ask ourselves, what else are they capable of? You know what I'm saying? Because to see it on that level, it lets us know that the military carries this ideology. Um, we know that we've already, we already know that the police force carries this, 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 this kinship, this ideology. We, we know that it exists in all these other areas, but to see it, Manifested at that level openly and publicly. I think that's the reason why I say it's so important that we study this um, and have conversations about this because there are a lot of lessons to be learned about this and how these people are masking who they really are and how the rhetoric, the propaganda, and the politically correct speech that they're using has deceived so many. And don't think that it was just one side. I mean, every capital police is not a republic. You know, and every patriot is not a Republican. And so the people calling for charges are, you know, all of them are involved. This is their, this is their, these are their people. They all look at each other like that. What they fighting over is who's going to control the pot. They ain't fighting over who's going to control, who's in control. They all agree that they are in control. They're just trying to figure out which side of who's going to control the pot and so on. Yeah, Mac. Um, I'm 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 very uh, fixated on this and paying very close attention. 
I'm looking, I'm watching, I'm studying, and I hope that our listeners, uh, you know, I hope I don't know that's right. You know, open up um, for for speakers, but I hope that this conversation, uh, people are reminded that this conversation has to continue on because there's a lot that we have to learn from this. Um, I want to share some history and a comment, and then I want to get into some information about you, bro, and what you've been doing. And you know, as we speak, I am at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center. I'm a slavery abolitionist like yourself. I'm here in Sumter. South Carolina, where exactly 160 years ago, the first shots were fired in the Civil War. And here we are today, where I feel like we are repeating history all over again. It's the same type of event that occurred in 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina, as I mentioned earlier, uh, where they took over an elected government because they refused to share equal rights with black people. Um, they massacred dozens, if not hundreds of people, and uh, installed a brand new white supremacist government, entire list of rights to white people only. And this happened in 1898, and it took 90 years, 90 freaking years for North Carolina to put it into its history books. Um, so that's the type of environment that we're dealing with. I believe that history is a synonym. It's the same shit smelled differently. Um, and that's where we at. If you want to know what's going to happen next, if you're worried about what's going to happen next, all you got to do is read a history book because this beast tends to repeat its actions. All right. So just to let my people know who I'm talking to, in addition to all of those accolades and efforts that I had mentioned earlier, host of Live from the Plantation, uh, this brother has uh, been the reason behind, and, and not him alone, of course, also Brother Kinetic. And, and many others have been involved in it. But he's been the reason that the Department of Justice came to investigate the Alabama prisons. He's the reason that uh, people, the Al Jazeera put out a documentary about what was happening in the U.S. prison. Him and those who he had been working with are the ones that brought so much light to the human rights violations happening in U.S. prisons in the Deep South, just like it was 1860 all over again. And now, as we speak, there's a lawsuit by the Department of Justice against the state of Alabama after they have determined, I think it was in 2014 or 15, that the state of Alabama's prison systems are uh, violating inmates' 8th and 14th Amendment rights habitually. It is systemic. And the conditions that they have to exist in are conditions that you would not allow a dog to exist in, let alone a human being. As we speak right now, this brother, and I'm not going to say his real name because we want this show to go on without somebody coming and snatching him up wherever he's at. This brother is talking to us from solitary freaking confinement where he has been for five years because of his uh, efforts at organizing prison strikes, labor strikes, boycotts, organizing the people inside and outside. What we're talking to, ladies and gentlemen, is a literal modern-day superhero. There you go, Benu. Tell us a little bit more about you, man. And I know you're humble, but I ain't for you. Well, Mac, you know I can never be out of those, man. But, like, you know, like you said, I'm I'm just doing my part, you know. Uh, we are spiritual beings um, having these experiences here on Earth. So my spirit is the spirit of, you know, the ancestors, those who were who were lovers of our people, lovers of life, um, and who understood that 
even though our conditions were bad, we have the power to overcome. You know, we have to fight, we have to stand up and I don't I'm I'm not a I'm not a anything. I'm I'm just doing I'm I'm doing what what's required. You know, I'm doing what any other human being would do, you know, in, in this situation. Um, like you said, um we I, I disagree with you, brother. I gotta disagree with you. You are not doing what any other human being would do. Yes, you're doing what any human being should be expected to do. But today, we have a world full of cowards. I'm just saying. And you ain't one of them. So continue. I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm just saying that if everybody was doing what they're supposed to do, we wouldn't have this problem. Right. Well, I'll say this. I'm doing what I was put here to do. I'll say it like that. I understand what you're saying. You're right. I'm doing what I was put here to do. So that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm, I'm living out of that, that part of who we are that that these responsibilities fail to. And my organizing has been going on since um, I would just say the current, the human rights aspect of what I'm doing right now, outside of being a jailhouse lawyer, what I'm doing right now as far as the, the broad and other perspective um, has been going on since around 2013. And uh, so I, I founded an organization um, here in Alabama called the Free Alabama Movement, and we throwed our ring into the hat in the struggle, you know, uh, starting out, we were so uninformed. Even though we knew, we knew what we knew. We were still just light years away from from knowing the the, the what was really going on. Uh, I think we have a better understanding now of, of, of how these things are working. Um, but you know, people on the inside um, and the people who love us and the people who support us, um, we all detest this system. We despise this system. We know how painful it is. We know how cruel it is. We know how brutal and barbaric it is. Um, but what we don't know, or what we hadn't known, or what um, some of us now know and what we're doing to educate others is that there are things that we can do on the inside um, to change this system. And that's what Free Alabama Movement was about. It was about putting the message out as far as what can we do. We started out on the state level. We started organizing um, within our state, and we were blessed um, to be able to take advantage of technology. We had access to technology at the time, cell phones, um, and those cell phones allowed us to connect with the, the broader society. It allowed us to get on social media. It allowed us to use YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, and that's what I did. I, I took my cell phones and I started documenting conditions and documenting stories and taking pictures filming things and filming people and telling stories and going inside of prison and showing people uh, a side of prison that they never wanted us to see, just like the, the, the incident we saw in Washington. They didn't want us to see that, but we saw it. They didn't want those cameras to roll and show, but we saw it. And so there are things that go on inside of these death chambers that they don't want people to see. And I understand that by not allowing people in and not allowing people to see anything, this is how they're able to keep the charade going. This is how they're able to keep people dumb and blind. But I knew that there was a sacrifice. There was a price that would have to be paid for that. But when you balance it out and you look at the suffering of our people and then you, you contrast that with, okay, there are more people suffering already than the amount of people who would suffer if this risk is taken if the sacrifice is made and so it balanced out it made sense and so that's what I did and uh, 
We organized around specific uh, methods, which are work strikes, boycotts, and as you said, organizing protests. We protest uh, with our family members and supporters, and we bring them to the prison. Um, a lot of people who are involved in these so-called criminal justice reforms or whatever other labels, I know that's one that people are familiar with, mass incarceration. They marching in the streets and they marching in the capitals and they marching with not. But very few of these organizations are mar- marching at the prisons or protesting at the prisons. And I felt like that was very important because when you, wherever you're protesting it, you're talking about human beings. And you're talking about a million human, over two million human beings combined in particular locations. And I think that if you're talking about the conditions going on inside, and you're concerned about the lives that are being impacted, and you're concerned about the, the brutality, then you have to go to those places and highlight their locations in order to highlight their conditions. And so that's one of the things that we did. Um, we, we started asking more and more people to come to the prisons and to, to conduct protests. And we started organizing those, um, and we started using the work strikes and the boycott because we understood that these are $100 billion industries. The labor that's going on inside of the prisons is a hundred, hundreds of billions of dollars industry. And you add in the, the, the collect phone calls, uh, the, the exploitation of, of the, uh, the, the canteens and the wall phones, all of the stuff that we're paying for the incentive packages, when you add all of that up, there are people who are being enriched by this. There are people whose lifestyles are fine. There are people who have jobs that they're able to take care of their families because of all of this stuff that's going on, because of that part of the system. And so our organizing with the federal movement was to attack that part of the system, to, to attack where the source of the income is to fund all of this stuff. And that's what we started doing in um, the, the social media campaign. Um, it took us, you know, I, I have to admit it took us much further than I anticipated. It, it took us around the world. It, those stories, when we backed up our strikes, normally what we were seeing is that when, when we would protest uh, peacefully and nonviolently because, you know, our people wasn't ready for war at that time on that scale. So when we do nonviolent things in prison, what the response would be from the, the administrators is that they would, when, it, when the public, when, when family members start talking and they made it to the public, the prisons would get out in front of the public um, righteous indignation and start saying, well, they're, 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 they're organizing gang activity or they're organizing riots. And then they would come in with, with maximum force and people would be, you know, tormented and tortured beyond recognition. Uh, we've had people we've had people beaten to death inside of this prison, just like those police were beaten to death in the Capitol. We've been beaten to death just like that. And so that's how they were able to keep that narrative going to justify their actions. And so by us putting that social media campaign together, putting it out there, I'm talking about it, and we just we flooded them with it. We had I had over a thousand and something pictures, I had over two hundred and something videos, I had all kind of interviews and testimonies. Um, I have secretly been recording officers in this conduct, secretly recorded the wars, secretly recorded uh, corrupt captains, put all of this stuff out there. So when we went on strike, before they found out that I had compiled all of this, this information, they were preparing. They had the riot team on the phone, and they were getting ready to come in, and they were getting ready to force us to go back to them. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, uh, the social media campaign kicked up, and it 
and jump out into the news, and the rest is history. You know? Excuse me. Uh, from that, from that uh, initial round of organizing, um, our message got out, our story got out, the conditions of the prisons got out, and we haven't left the scene since. The, the Alabama prison system has not been out of the news since that day, January first, two thousand fourteen, when we had our, when we kicked off our uh, work strike in boycott uh, in the state of Alabama, and it has only grown. And as you said, by 2015, we were being contacted by people in society and other guys in prison systems around the country who had access to cell phones. Um, and they were learning about free Alabama movement, and they wanted to get organized, and they wanted to get educated. And so we started our, uh, our first radio show, Blocks, our radio show was the People's Platform, so that we could reach everybody. We put that out there. Um, Going live was not a thing at the time, so we didn't have that, but we had the radio shows and stuff, so we put that together. Um, and that message took us first in the Mississippi. The Free Mississippi Movement started in the Free Mississippi Movement United. And from there, it just kept, continued to grow until we got in contact with a man named Bob Whitnack. Um, he was with the Carcerate, the Garden State, New Jersey. Yeah, and a friend of mine that sent him away. Okay, by 2015, I had came up with a, a outline called the Sam Six Step Plan of Action, and that Six Step Plan of Action laid out what organizers could do in their state to organize the same type of action because people liked the fact that it was nonviolent, and they liked the fact that the state could not come in and, and misconstrue the message or, or, or falsify the message with the riot and stuff because of the way that we had used social media. And that social media campaign that we did, it actually gave people cover in the future because it exposed the reality of the prison system and it made people start paying attention. And so people were able to accept what their loved ones were telling them in other places. And it was like, wow, I didn't know it was like that. I didn't know it looked like that. I didn't know the food was like that. It legitimized people's uh, conversations around the country. And so as a result of that, um, we were able to, to, to start the process of, from the six-step plan of action. Um, I wrote a document called Let the Crops Ride in the Field, and by that time we had created alliances and built allies and, and partners, and one of them, um, they had checked that document, and we were able to disseminate all around the United States. Uh, thanks to them, uh, thanks to San Francisco Baby, we were able to penetrate the prison system under the radar, so to speak, around the world, and once the message got in, you know, they just needed to get contacted to the message, and we have, we were able to contact them to the message and contact them with enough information to where they could organize without even being in contact with us, and the, the support network that was out there waiting to support them already knew what was going on. They knew what to do, so it made every, everyone's job so much easier, um, and that led us into 2016, where we were and we will continue to have work strikes in the state of Alabama. Um, our chief political strategist, Kinetic Justice Amon, um, he was able to continue to put in the work, uh, continue to, you know, keep the people motivated and inspired. Um, I was a spokesperson. I was able to continue to get the message out there, to continue to spread the message around the globe. And by 2016, we were able to have the uh, 45th anniversary uh, national prison strike uh the 45th anniversary of the Attica Rebellion National Strike Boycott and Protest Campaign. 
Um, and it, at the time, was the largest prison strike in U.S. history, over 30,000 people, over 20-something states. Um, you know, we still don't know the exact number. There, there was never a way to just simply say, but we, what the, and these are just numbers that we were able to confirm. And um, it put an infrastructure in place that, that allowed other organizations, because we're not the only inside organization. Uh, that, that, that's moving people and getting things done. But what it did was it, it broadened the scope of understanding for other inside organizations of what we actually have the potential to do, what we're really capable of. We don't just have to organize in our state. We can organize with others all around the country and all around the world. And that's how you magnify your message. What we did in Alabama was great for Alabama. But the fact that we were able to take that message on the road and allow others to, to participate, that intensity of the magnification of it all by all of us participating and going on at one time, it, 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 it just took us to another level um, in this human rights struggle. It opened up it opened us up to contacts with attorneys and journalists. Um, I know people in, you know, prisons all around the United States and, and organizing, and every last one of them got 100 journalists direct contact information in their phone, and it is because of what we were able to do coming out of the national prison strike with the, the network. I, I use the word network here instead of infrastructure because we didn't have our infrastructure in place. We had a network of people that came in from around the country uh, to assist uh, in many different ways. And the reason why I distinguish between network and infrastructure because that network over time broke down. You know, you, you come to disagreements, people burn out, or organizations move on to something else, and because some of them are Johnny on the spots and stuff. And some of these, this network that we had, it was in place, and it allowed other national events to go on. There was ended up being another uh, national prison strike. There were strikes all over the place, protests all over the place. There was a 2017 Meetings for Prisons Human Rights March, and and and. And all of the, that network that we built from 2015 that led up to 2016 and what it created after the fact, it allowed other people the interconnectedness of these networks. But um, after that, when I was still in confinement at the time, what I realized was that these people that had came, a lot of them had used us, a lot of them had exploited us, um, a lot of them were there just for the moment but we didn't have our own infrastructure in place. And so when I identified that and, and, and was trying to figure out what can we do uh, to address that, I started um, writing a campaign in 2017 called the Campaign to Redistribute the Pain. Um, it was published throughout the San Francisco Bayview platforms, and I sent to uh, Queen Tahira from the Free Ohio Movement she picked up the campaign. She picked up my writing, and she's the one that put. She was the. She put a uh, a structure together for that 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 allowed it to become a national campaign. Because, like I said, I was in solitary confinement. I didn't have access to a phone. I didn't have access to the internet. But I could write, and I had access to people that had platforms. But I was doing a lot of the pushing myself, and she was able to take it and just do the things that I couldn't do but that she needed to be done. And she pushed it out there. She was like the project manager, executive director. I just, you know what I'm saying, I give her praise for that because without her uh, assisting me in that manner, it never would have been able to, to grow. But in right before the campaign started, I, I think it was in November of 2017, I wrote an article, and I started talking about, 
putting the infrastructure together for the National Freedom Movement. And um, I talked about it and shared it. And so then I come back later on. I finally got out of solitary confinement from that five-year period. Um, and when I got out, the organization itself, the Alabama Movement, was on, you know, we were, we were, we were, we were flatlined, you know what I'm saying? We were, we were on life support. And so the first thing I had to do was rebuild my organization. And I started rebuilding it, rebuilding contact. And then I had to get to where we can start conducting events. And so we were able to, the first event that we were able to conduct was something that I had called uh, Parole Watch 2020. And we had a three-day event in Alabama where we protested at the parole board because the situation had got dire. They had promoted a, a known racist, white supremacist, a man who helped uh, write the uh, habitual offender law, talked about um burning people in Alabama's electric chair to their eyeballs popped out. This became the parole director, and they stopped granting paroles. And so we started protesting against him. We were the only organization that was willing to go out there and put our name on it and protest at the parole board. We had tremendous support. The uh, Fam Queen team and Queen Nikki D went out there, set up shop, put on, like, the champions that they were. And uh, we had a great event. We had a great three-day period. Um, and over time, eventually, not just solely because of our activism, but in addition to our activism, we were able to eventually, he was forced out. He ended up having to resign because what he was doing, the same way we were doing in the past, we kept him in the news. And our network of people kept him in the news. And other organizations kept him in the news until it became a political problem. But coming out of that, free Alabama movement, we had changed back. And so it was at that time that I realized that now I need to get back to putting the National Freedom Movement structure together because we got to have our structure in place. And so that's what I'm doing today. Um, I, I, I wrote, I, I finished the uh, the outline for FAM's uh, Plan of Action 2021. Um, we have our agenda set out on the state level, but I also was able to, co- to, to, to go back and put the pieces together for the National Freedom Movement. Uh, we're now having meetings now. We're meeting with organized all around the United States. And the National Freedom Movement is an inside-based, inside-led movement, and we're putting it together from the inside out. And this time, we're going to build our own outside support networks, and by that I mean every state will have an inside umbrella organization that will bring all the organizations together. Everyone wants to know that umbrella. So people don't have to put themselves at risk or put their organization at risk. We'll create an umbrella organization for you. Uh, we got Free California Movement is the first one that we've got. Um, going so far, um, but at the same time, when we put our outside network together, we're going to build it from the ground up where they'll be able to answer, collect calls. Um, when activists organize have issues, we want to have one statewide phone number that people know this is the number to call. Uh, we want to have uh, a station set up in every state like that. We want to have one office space in every state, and until we get to that point, we may just have one office space, but that one office space will continue to try to get organized um, to put the infrastructure together that will be coming from the inside because there are a lot of outside organizations that are part of this, this struggle, but we're just a part of that organization. They have other things to do. They have other agendas. They have other platforms. They have a whole lot of other things, and we're just a part of it. But what we want something put up where the outside organizations is 100% exclusively dedicated and committed to the inside agenda. And the only way that's going to happen is if we build it ourselves 
And so that's what the National Freedom Movement is all about, and that's what I'm putting together now. Uh, we still have actions on the state side in the state of Alabama, and we're still building and grinding in state. But these issues that we share, we all share them in common. And even though each state has their own different issues, there are certain issues that we all share. And in addition to that, there are certain structural uh, components that all look the same. Hey, Benu. So I'm asking, yes, sir. Uh, that's actually one of the things that I, I did want to get into, certain structural components about it, because I want to dig a little deeper into Benu. And I'm glad you just explained the, uh, the movement that you put together, because there's a brother by the name Moab who came out to Alabama with us when we went over there uh, for you guys to do the rally, and he wants to be involved. So he's on the outside looking to help. He's probably going to call in tonight. Uh, if you're a caller and you're listening and you have a comment or a question, remember to press 1 on your keypad so that I know you want to make a comment or a question. Um, we go way back, Benu. Like you said, Bob, I sent him your way back you know, back in the day. Uh, and uh, even with the abolitionist movement, we've always been in support of each other. While the work strikes was going on, we went to D.C. and marched. And then we organized, I think it was 17 states to do a national march along with you. Um, you know, and, and we've had some pretty deep conversations. Uh, one of the questions I want to ask you is, uh, when did you become aware of the 13th Amendment, started viewing it as slavery, and how is that inclusive in your efforts today? Okay. Um, I was a jailhouse lawyer like most people, you know, um, coming through the law library. And our teacher, um, he was he is the best. He's the best that there ever has been. Um, he's the best we've ever saw. He's the best a lot of people saw. His name is Honorable James McConaughey Jr. And he he had been to law school. I think he said he went to real estate law. And when he came into the system, he set up a curriculum for us and taught us the law. And we had to remember verbatim uh, about 10 of the uh, Bill of Rights or what most people call the constitutional amendment. And we had to remember one, uh, the First Amendment, Congress should make no law respecting the establishment of religion, free exercise thereof, provision freedom of speech or the president, the right of people, peace to assemble, petition to go for redress agreement, all the way down to the 14th Amendment. And we had to know all of those uh, verbatim. And the 13th Amendment was on there. And so we studied it, and I was familiar with it. And he would be telling us, you know, 13th Amendment slavery stuff, but you don't just get that overnight. You know, when someone tells you that, you don't get it overnight because when we think about history as a result of what we've been taught about history, we think about something that happened in the past, and it's always spoken up in the past tense. And so it's, it's difficult for you to all of a sudden to put it not only in the present tense, but to apply it to your situation just because you are a victim of it. And so we evolved and went through that little thing to the point where, you know, it, it's starting to grow on you. And you start reading books out of the prison legal news and you start seeing how these things work. Um, so leading up to the, the 2014 strikes, I wrote a book and they call it the Manifesto Free Alabama Movement. Uh, <clears throat> I'm working on getting it edited now because it's, it's a not in the best of form, but the information in it is the best that we had at the time. But I included the 13th Amendment. But even then, I still did not 
it just it, it wasn't there because I know where I was then and I know where I am now. And so over time, I would say somewhere around after 2014, after I got put in lockup and after I started talking to more people around the country outside of the state of Alabama, I started realizing, and I met you through Scotty Reed's show, and we used to come on Scotty Reed's y'all show and listen to, to, to you all conduct the show and stuff. And the information that y'all were putting out and the way that y'all were putting it out and the research that y'all were doing, I mean, to come on that show and press one was intimidating because you knew, you, you know, you better know what you're talking about right here, bro, because if you make a mistake, somebody's going to interrupt you live. <laughs> like you did to this professor in Texas. <laughs> yeah, I learned how to do that from the best. And so um, that's kind of like where it, where it all came together over that little that period. You know, it's one thing to learn about something and study it, but it's another thing to throw your ring in the hat, put your feet in the fire the information starts just coming to you from the universe and, and supernatural speed. You, you know, you start learning. You learn a lot faster when your feet are to the fire. And so with our feet being to the fire and being in that thing and putting us in contact with people, it just brought information to us. Um, and so I would say around 2015 is when it finally, maybe 2014, late, early 2015, I knew then that I was slave. But even today, I still struggle because I think um, – a couple of weeks ago, I used the word mass incarceration. We were on a Zoom call, and, and what happened? Max jumped in and said, hey, what, uh, what is this mass incarceration? Thing? So it's still it's still a process, but I know I know what, what's going on now. I'm, 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 I'm fully aware. My, my language every now and then, I may make a slip up, um, but I'm not slipping on understanding. I know what's going on. So I would just say, like, uh, yeah, that's, 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 that'll be the time, Max. No doubt, man. And shout out to Scotty Reed. We are streaming live right now on Black Talk Radio Network as well. So uh, as we said, we're a syndicated program, and it's kind of like going back home with that. Uh, so Scotty's uh, probably listening in. He's not probably. He is listening in right now. So shout out to Scotty Reed. We've been doing this for like a decade on the radio now. Um, and I'm looking forward to next week's program when Brother Yohanan Elia is my special guest throughout the evening. And like you and I have now, he and I will be talking. And for those that don't know who he is, uh, we go all the way back to the early days of New Abolitionist Radio. So it's going to be wild, Scotty, Yohanan, and Max, and Yusuf all together. <laughs> That's going to be awesome. And today with Brother Ben New, we go way back on this issue. Uh, ben New, I want to open up the phone lines. If anybody has a question or comment, please press 1 on your keypad so that I know you do. And then uh, we'll get a comment or two in, and then we'll go into our music break. After the music break, we're going to talk a little bit more, and then I want to play a clip of you, Benu, discussing this issue with uh, a Texas professor. (laughs) And I I want to hear your story (laughs) after that, all right? So we got one uh, hand up here, so let's go to 2397. You are here with us at Abolition Today. Uh, state your name, question, or comment. Uh, yes, uh, this is Moaz. Can you brothers hear me? Yes, sir. What's happening, yes, brother? Sir. Yes, Welcome sir. to Abolition Today. Hey, hey, Max. How you doing? Um, appreciate your brothers, um, you know, kind of uh, firstly putting in the work. Um, this is, like, highly admirable. I really look up to your brothers, and, um, you know, I can't even imagine what uh, – the new and, and, and the brothers who are locked down going, are going through, but um, I really, uh, I really admire the abolitionists 
uh, who are, you know, bringing about trying to, to end this legal slavery that uh, people think ended in you know, 1865. You know, I'm educating myself on it. Um, it's interesting because when I saw the 13th documentary, you know, it kind of brought to light what a lot of people kind of glossed over about this little loophole clause or whatever. But um, I never really, until I like heard from, um, you know, Otis kind of put me on to um, Max and, and the work that the, the abolitionists are doing, I never knew that there was actually, uh, you know, different uh, brothers out there who are actually trying to um, or, or actively trying to end the slavery. You know, it's one thing to to, uh, to bring everybody to light about it, you know what I mean? But it's, it's a whole other thing to actively try to um, correct what was um, what was falsely thought to be ended, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so anyway, uh, to say all that, uh, Benu, I just want to know, you know, I'm in, I'm in Montgomery, Alabama. I wanted to know. As a person, person who's on the outside, what can people do to uh, kind of get involved you know, on some level or assist? Okay. Um, were you directing that to me or to me? That's to you, okay. Yeah, that was um, to you. Okay. Well, as I explained, as far as the um, what we have on the plate right now, getting our infrastructure built is the most important thing for us because we have to be independent. Um, like I said, when we put this at that network together in 2016, when those people left and took all their resources with them, like, we didn't have accounts set up to collect our own money. They were doing that for us. You know, they, when they took that stuff, they took our money with us. Um, we didn't have people that had computers. Um, they brought all that stuff with us. But when they left, we didn't have uh, the capabilities as the access to the computer data for creating files, creating documents, um, preserving records. So we just, we, we, were, we were handicapped because we were not independent. And so that's what, that's what the, the agenda is right now. We have to build an independent infrastructure. And so for people that are, that are out there want to know what they can do to, we need you all to reach out to us at this email. The number one uh, National Freedom Movement at gmail.com. Uh, we have conference calls every Saturday at 6 o'clock p.m. Standard Time. And we want to get your email and get you added to that list and get you involved in helping us. Now, having said that. Can you repeat that one more time? I'm going to write it down. Yes, yes sir. Uh, the number one and then National Freedom Movement at gmail.com. Okay. Okay. And what I want people to understand is that this is a when you're an outside supporter, when you when you when you come to join the National Freedom Movement, this is your your number one responsibility on the job. The number one responsibility on the job is to help us reach guys on the inside of the prison system in your state, whether that's a state prison, a federal prison, a county jail, a detention facility, a city jail, whatever it is. Our, we want the guys on the inside. There are 2.5 million of us, men and women and children. We want we want those people first and foremost. And so if you come in, that's what we need you to do. And everything that we're asking you to do is going to be related to that responsibility. And we want you to set a base up on the outside in your state and help us recruit volunteers from the colleges, from the high school ranks from the communities that Michelle Alexander described in her book as the million-dollar block. We want you to go into the impacted area because these are the people who have the human vested interest in this thing. The other communities, they have the financial interest. Um, 
our communities have a healing issue because there's a human body that came out of that community and was ripped away and put into a facility. And that's what we're trying to, to connect. We want to bring all of that together. And um, so that's the thing. That's what we need to have the most. And whatever resource or access that you have that you can offer relative to that, um, if you can donate, if you can get a phone line set up where you can write letters and tell the guys, hey, call this number. Um, we need to know who the organizers are in your state. We have a vetting process. If those guys are organizers, we want to contact them. Uh, the outside organization in the state can get the letter. They can forward the letter or scan the letter. The guys on the inside can start reading and doing some vetting and figure out who's going to fit inside of what we're doing with the National Freedom Movement and then help them get a status. Maybe they want to get a 5013. Maybe they want to get a, a, a state corporation. Maybe they don't want that. Whatever they want to do, that's what we need you to do. Whatever they tell you, when we identify an organizer that we want to work with, whatever they tell you that they want to do is what we need for you to do to make sure that that happens for them. Because no one can tell me about what it's like to be inside of a hole, the food, the living conditions, or what the best method to address it. But me and the people who have been in here and been through this with me. So outside support has to become, it, we have to reimagine or create a new vision of what outside support looks like. And that's what the role of the National Freedom Movement is, and that's what we're doing. And for those who want to come in, if you have a printer, you can help the brother print the letters off. If you have a stamp machine, you can help put the stamps off. Um, if, you, if, you, if you have graphic designs, so you can help us get newsletters or information on the inside or for people to stand out and do time within the community. Uh, reaching out, passing out information. These are the things that we're going to be asking you to do. We know people have other ideas. We know people are already doing other things, and that's fine. But we have ideas, too, and we feel like our ideas have been the ideas that have moved the needle over the last several years. The work strikes moved the needle. The hunger strikes moved the needle. The protests that our family members were conducting in the prison moved the needle. So we feel like that our ideas have been more impactful then the other stuff that they don't combine. We we please a lot of people. So we're trying to make sure that we stay on course and that we stay connected to the struggle. And the last thing that I would say that we would need from a house out of Florida is to connect us to the boots on the ground. You know, the organizers in Baltimore, the organizers in uh Saint Louis, the organizers in Minnesota, the organizers in, in you know, wherever that that fit the description of what we're trying to do and that are fighting for our people plug us into them and help us carry our mission to them and help bridge that gap and connect us all together because we'll tie in the space of Matt and his crew will tie in the gap and show you why the murder of Mike Brown is connected to what we call mass incarceration of freedom of state. We can tie all of that means, but we've got to get everyone together in the same place so we can make the presentation. Brother Benu, um, thank you. I, I, I want to get into our music break. I want to thank Brother Muaz for calling and reaching out. Uh, please be sure to listen Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern to Live from the Plantation. Uh, Brother Benu hosts that. Uh, it's sponsored by Abolition Today, and I'm sure he's going to go into a lot more detail on that occasion as well as this movement grows. Uh, so with that being said, we're going to go ahead and listen to this music break. Got a couple of quotes on it. I'll tell you about it on the other side. After that's done, uh, we're going to play a clip again uh, about a discussion that Brother had, Brother Benu had with a professor in Texas. So 
You're listening to Abolition Today. I'm Max Parthas. I'm here with Benu Hannibal Rasan, who is right now in Alabama prisons. And we'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. This is treason. This is treason. This is treason. This is treason. This insurrection, insurrection. This is rebellion. Period. People moving out. People moving in. Why? Because of the color of the skin. Run, 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 but you sure can't hide. And I bought out a tooth for a tooth. Vote for me, and I'll set you free. Talking about love and brother is the preacher. And it seems nobody's interested in learning but the teacher. Segregation, determination, demonstration, integration, aggravation, humiliation, obligation to my nation.
today? Yo, we had to go with the classic, man. Temptations, ball of confusions with quotes from Van Jones. Uh, of course, we had to go there. Uh, one of our things we pride ourselves on here is bridging the gap between then and now. And we have been talking about this forever. Ball of confusions fits perfectly right now. Um, I see we got another caller, too. So I'm going to go ahead and bring him in, Benu, him or her. 9193, you are with us on Abolition Today. State your name, question, or comment. 9193. All right. One more time. 9193. Uh, you are live on the air. You may be muted. Okay. We'll come back to you later. Brother Benu, any comments? Um, just, um, I heard something in that, in, that, in that snippet, and, um, I know you said you was going to play something, you were going to come in on it. Um, yes. he said, he said, just think if Black Lives Matter would have came to Congress in the midst of a session to, that's another thing, that's another important fact that I, I, I missed that first when I first started. They were in there to count the electoral votes. To right. confirm the election of President Joe Biden as president elect. Now think about that. They came up there to storm it to stop the count, to stop them from doing their constitutional duty of declaring the next president of the United States. So when people say the word coup, when they were saying it at first, I was like, well, how is it a coup? And then I found out, well, damn, they were trying, okay, so that's how it was a coup. And so they were talking about the complicity of Donald Trump. This is what he orchestrated. Uh, he tried to orchestrate a coup. That's where that language is coming from. Anyway, mm-hmm. but the thing that I want to say is that when the guy said, just think if Black Lives Matter came, Black Lives Matter wouldn't even do that. Black Lives Matter is not that kind of organization. They're not, you know what I'm saying? That's not what they do. So I think that that was just, a, that just when he said that coming, I was like, they're using this organization. And that's a bad example because, like, Black Lives Matter is, like, they're a lot of what they're doing is commercial now. So that was just another thing, but it just was in the context of what was actually going on. Those people were there to stop um, the counting or tabulation of votes from the Electoral College for declaring the next president of the United States, and Black Lives Matter not trying to do this. So that. So that's just what I wanted to add. Uh, and, and the excuses that they're using now is the same reasoning that was given by Black Lives Matter organizers in uh, places where there were an- was anarchy happening during their peaceful protests. And they didn't want to hear that then. No, it's just a few people doing this. Not all of us. We're all here peacefully. And they still said, shoot them. When the looting starts, the shooting starts. Remember all of that? And now it's a whole different story when they have to use the same reasoning. It wasn't all of us who were there for peaceful protests. It was just a few (laughs) bad apples, you know, and we're supposed to say, okay, nah, you all knew what you were coming there for. We heard you on tape. I got one that I was going to play, but didn't where the woman is saying we were there for a revolution. We thought we was going to have a revolution. And then, like, the looting, the, the, the looting, look at the looting. These folks were coming out there with the podium. They just stole men. The blows oh, mail. They were taking shit off the walls. I mean, and you haven't even heard the word looting associated with this stuff. They looted the damn state, the, the, the um, United States um, 
Capitol. I mean, like, Congress, I'm sorry, they, they looted the U.S. Congressional Building, and the word looting was not used once. And these people took seven years all around, you know, as neighbors. And you got the, the two people that are courtesans for politics, Van Jones and Joy Reid, on the program tonight, you know, dropping the troop bombs. <laughs> you know, like, if this had been us, it would be a whole different story. We we know the Im- what the images look like. Uh, when you expect a protest versus oppression, whether it be a police oppression or government oppression, but, uh, a protest against oppression to show up, the police line up like soldiers in their super tanks. And remember Missouri coming up with tanks on people and pointing their guns at children and whatnot? That's how they treat us. And they knew weeks in advance these people were coming. They didn't even bother to get any help. From what I heard, and I don't know if this is true or not, but the mayor supposedly reached out to the National Guard several times to try to get them in and couldn't do it because only the president could do it. I might be wrong. But, yeah, man, it's just – it's again, history is a synonym because here we are, right at the point where we're about to end slavery in the United States. We've already got uh, four states done, we got 18 on the plate ready to get done, and a joint federal resolution to remove the pro slavery language from the Constitution by uh, countering it with anti slavery language, right? All of that is in play at the same time as they're trying to cause a freaking coup. It's just I feel like I've been here before, like the opening track said, <laughs> you know? All right, uh, Benu, you know, as I said, brother, uh, we be headhunting, and there's a problem in our society. Abolition Today, uh, Free Alabama Movement, many other organizations, the Abolish Slavery National Network, we all very much aware of the exception clause of the 13th Amendment and how it's been used for the past 155 going on six years. Now, uh, through convict leasing, warehousing bodies, all of these different exploitative ways that they tried to keep slavery going. Many, even in academia, have don't have a clue. I have met constitutional lawyers, attorneys, politicians, who, to the best of their awareness, only knew that the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. They never bothered to read it. It was only 47 words, and for those many that did, they didn't read it critically. They just skipped over that like it wasn't even there. Uh, and constantly did that. But we got a movement going right now, which is the biggest constitutional movement to be seen in this country in generations. And it's already happening and already being successful, right? But the news didn't reach certain people. The memo didn't get out to certain people. And we need y'all to fix that. We need you to stop lying to our children because you were lied to. We need you to think critically. So I'm going to play a clip uh, that... Brother Benu was a participant in from a Texas uh, professor, and it will be immediately followed by another short clip from a brother in Texas who was doing the archaeological dig and researching for the Sugarland, Texas mass graves of convicts who had been buried in these mass graves during the Texas convict leasing period. So it's kind of a reply right after that, and then we'll get Benu's comments. Benu, you ready for that, bro? I'm ready, man. I'm ready. That was, uh, right. that was bizarre, man. That was something. It, it was bizarre, but here's the problem, y'all. Listen in. Abolition. Abolition. Today. 
And one of the things that is interesting about our Constitution in the state of Texas is that we have the ability to be able to control our own school system. Uh, obviously, most of you are aware now that there are many charter schools that are becoming very more, uh, more and more popular. But that particular Constitution, when it established the permanent school fund, they did it in a particular way to where they wanted to make sure that the United States government did not have control over their education system. So regardless of how you may feel about the state of Texas education system, one of the provisions that they made early on was they wanted to have their own school fund because they felt like as long as you control the funding for the school, you can control the education of the citizens and the children of that particular state. And they didn't want that to happen in their state. So that was one of the best things that came out of that particular constitution. Uh, the next one would be 1861. And this is where the, the state of Texas actually established itself as one of the Confederate states. And when that happened, this is this is kind of the, the, the crucial point in, in terms of Texas history and its constitution. Because when it adopted that constitution, it decided then that it was going to be a part of the Confederacy and it was going to actually go to war with the Union. And that's what Texas became really a, a state that was basically it wasn't necessarily in the, it's not uh, showing its independence, but it was really a state that was really just uh, uh, uh Doing what, doing what it felt was best for its citizens. And when it became one of the Confederate states, they felt like this was what the best path for the state of Texas. Uh, the next one was 1866. And again, I, I apologize for making this too much like a classroom when getting, getting into dates. But don't worry, nobody be tested on the dates. But the 1866 Constitution, uh, this was always considered the Reconstruction Constitution of the state of Texas. And that became very important because there were two things that really came out of that Constitution that were very crucial. And the first one was, of course, that it nullified succession. And that is when the state of Texas decided that it was going to come back into the union, one of the things that they had to do was they had to nullify succession, meaning that at that point they had to agree that they were never going to succeed from the union again. And then the second one, which was very important uh, to the state's history, and that was that they abolished slavery. Because many people made the argument that if it wasn't for Reconstruction, if it wasn't for the fact that the state of Texas uh, was very adamant about the position that they were in financially, the position that they were in in terms of being an independent state, that they knew that they needed to be a part of the United States of America, that when they decided to come back into the Union, that if it wasn't for that, that they essentially would have never abolished slavery. They wouldn't abolish slavery until the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution where slavery just became abolished. They simply just would have never done it. They would have never done it on their own. So they literally had to be forced into that particular position. So some people like to call it you were forced into greatness. So even though that may have been a great moment in the state's history, you were essentially forced into that moment because of the because of the fact that you wanted to rejoin the union. The first steps towards convict leasing in Texas happened right at the end of the Civil War and right at the moment of emancipation. There was really no gap in time. Slavery, for some people, moved or passed right into convict leasing. And that's a Texas story specifically. The thing that made convict leasing legally possible was the provision in the Emancipation Proclamation that slavery or or forced labor, more specifically, was only possible if a person had been convicted of a crime. Convict leasing took advantage of that provision by convicting people for very minor actions, or sometimes no actions at all, 
then these people would become prisoners. As such, then they could legally be forced to do labor. It wasn't literally, legally re-enslavement, but it was taking advantage of this provision that was built into the emancipation process itself and the document that brought about legal emancipation that crime could justify coerced labor. Abolition. 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 What you just heard is a tale of two Texases. Uh, as we discussed last week uh, about this, you have two schools of thought. You have uh, the originalists who go by what the original framers of the Constitution said, and then you have the, the uh, new originalists, which goes back to 1865 when the Constitution was remade with these uh, some of their previous things being rejected. And uh, there's a lot I can say about this clip. I got about 15 minutes of material and audio that I might play with in the future. Uh, but just this one little section right here where he boldly talks about how slavery has ended and how Texas had to be dragged screaming and kicking into greatness. And his idea of greatness and ours might be different because we know that Texas started convict leasing only months after they were uh, informed that slavery had ended. So they immediately went to sugarcane and all of these different things that they were doing, using the same people. Uh, so there's two schools of thought, and you just heard both of them. Uh, the one that says slavery is, has ended, and the one that says, no, here's the bones of the people who were buried in mass graves because they were worked to death. Slavery did not end. Then you had some replies to that, and tell me about your experience and your replies. Okay, um, first thing I want to do is go back just a, just, just back a little bit to the National Freedom Movement when I was talking about outside organizations and outside support, where there have been several organizations that have already stepped up to the plate. Uh, one of them in particular that I want to highlight, and I'll explain why, is um, an organization that was found by a lady out of the state of Texas uh, she's the founder of the organization. She has a family member incarcerated. She founded her organization to advocate Several. for him. And she also had, she's the statewide coordinator for the African, I mean, Abolish Slavery National Network. Um, she's a, a board member of several other organizations. Her name is Savannah Eldridge. And her organization that she founded, Be Frank for Justice, um, she's really setting the blueprint for organizations nationwide as far as being an outside support organization because she supported the National Freedom Movement. Her organization hosts the, um, the the Zoom calls, and we were just able to get our own Zoom line yesterday. And so uh, fiscal sponsorship, she, she's provided fiscal sponsorship uh, for the National Freedom Movement. Um, she's provided outreach. And so she was part of a panel discussion um, hey, I was supposed to keep that anonymous, man. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. She was a part of a panel discussion. I didn't get the order that you got, uh, Max. So, uh, <laughs> um, we were involved. This is how we, uh, the National Freedom, the inside voices were able to be on that show and on that platform because our outside support put us in contact with this event which is what I'm describing, what we need our outside support to do. And so being on there with her and her leading the efforts in the state to abolish the slavery cause and abolish slavery in the state of Texas, and so that's what this conversation came about. And there were some other parts of this conversation that this professor spoke 
because when he he made that statement, we were addressing the issue of you're saying that slavery is, has been abolished. And one of the things he said was that he was making that statement because that's what the academic teach and that's what it is, you know, then like and so we went back and forth on that and the, the whole interview you all be able to watch, I think there's a a zoom link to it, but the challenge to that, that's something that has to be challenged. And he acknowledged that this is what they're teaching in these institutions. And so the the, the conversation went to the fact that the thirteenth Amendment states clearly unequivocally that slavery was not abolished. But most people are relying on the the um, the verbal transfer of information about that. They're telling us this. They're teaching us this. But that's not what the actual um, amendment says. The institution of slavery was never abolished. That is where the prison system comes from. And I like to point this out when I talk about this. The, the, the amendment says neither slavery nor voluntary servitude except as punishment for crime for one who has been duly convicted. This is where the connection to the criminal justice come in. It says, except if several person has been duly convicted, except for punishment crime when a person has been duly convicted. The duly conviction aspect of that statement occurs in the courtrooms in the United States. And then it says, except as punishment for crime. The departments of corrections around this country is where the punishment aspect is carried out. And then you go back where it says neither slavery or voluntary servitude. That is what it preserved. It preserved the practice of slavery and voluntary servitude as punishment for crime upon due conviction. So there are three components at play there. Okay, so once you are duly convicted in the courtroom, you're given your sentence, and you go to the Department of Corrections that was set up because when you're duly convicted, that's where you go to the state prison system. The practice of the institution of slavery and involuntary servitude is where it is carried out at. And so I found it to be amazing that we were on that call and that we were on there for that subject matter and for him to make that statement in the position that he's in as a college professor was just, you know, it was it was it was um it was very humbling because that is the problem. That is the problem. That is why we're here. That is why they make the sacrifices. They make our job necessary, you know, because this is what is going on in America. You know, this is where the information is, is being put out. It's being taught in the school. It's being taught. And this is a college professor, and he's teaching it all the way in college. So um, it was just an, uh, it was an amazing conversation. Um, I hope that people get an opportunity to hear the full dialogue because I'm not even giving justice how that conversation unfolded, but um, it was just an amazing uh, sequence of events and conversation for people to have to listen to, and I think that people will be rewarded. So I encourage everyone to reach out to basically our, our national outside support organization, Be Frank for Justice at BeFrankForJustice.org. Uh, get the contact information, and, um, and, and, and and let's get let's get going. Let's get plugged in, and let's get this engine started, and let's go ahead and and, and and finish the job that our ancestors set out to do um, over 400 years ago from the first time those ships arrived, over 500 years ago when those ships started arriving on the uh, west coast of Africa and our people were um, put in the bondage. That's right, bro. Um, I want to give a shout-out to Jesse Ames after um, 
months of not being able to hear new abolitionist radio because uh, they were on dial up. They finally got to hear his live today. The listening. So shout out to Jesse. What's happening? Um, man, there was so much in that little clip that I could break down and you did a, a good job of it, it for sure. Uh, you stood your ground there when discussing it with him. Uh, and even though he was very condescending to you at the end and he pissed all over the whole idea of abolishing slavery in Texas, uh, throughout it, I, I think that you did a good job of informing this intellectual who is unwilling to accept new information or even consider for a moment that he might not have it right. <laughs> that this brother calling from inside solitary freaking confinement knows more than you know about that particular situation. And that you are not only miseducating, but you're helping the slave system to exist as if it weren't really there because you're telling people it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. We have the largest prison population in history of humanity, and it's all a great big mistake. Slavery, we don't even have slave catchers, so how are we going to have slavery? <laughs> you know? This is how they look at it. They got to change that. You got to stop. Stop. It's harmful, man. It's harmful, you know. He's talking about something out of a book. And I'm talking about something out of day-to-day, minute-to-minute, second-to-second. The, the only reality we have is, is right now. You know what I'm saying? The past don't exist, and the future is a fantasy. We don't know nothing about Right now, the reality is what I was speaking from. And so that's what made me respond, because you're denying my reality. You're denying right. my existence. You're denying that these things that I'm saying are true when you say that the institution doesn't exist. And I'm sitting here with the lashes on my back. And like you talked Literally. about the things that I've been through, uh, my head has been busted. I got I got photos of it. It looked like I had a, a, a one of those satellites that, um, what the guy named, keeps sending uh, Bronson. He keeps sending the satellites up in the space. From, from the, mm-hmm. I had a satellite like that. That's what I had on my head. That's what I looked like. Um, mm-hmm. I've been food for you know, I've been food for it. And, uh, I've had a warden and a captain solicit a hit on my life. So I'm going through all of these things. So there's no way that I could remain silent. But I was against, so I couldn't just go in. He wasn't on Abolition Today, thank God. He wasn't on Abolition Today, thank God. And and we so got Savannah on the line, too, by the way. Just let you know her line is open. Okay, okay, great. Um, uh, come on in, Savannah. Let's introduce. Uh, hey, listen, this is this the lady of the hour. And... Um, you know, just so much love for her, so much respect for her, so much admiration and appreciation for what she's doing. But like I said, when it comes to the outside support network, she's like standing there like this ten foot tall giant saying, I got you. I believe in that. I believe in the idea. And um we just, you know, I can't express enough the gratitude, appreciation for what she's doing. And the the assistance, I mean, it's, she's not questioning the motive. She's not questioning the thing because she believes in this and she understands it and she sees this. And she ain't sitting around waiting for us to call and dictate. She's already figured out how this thing works. She understands the problem, and that's the work that she's doing. So it's a privilege to have her on, too, because she's representing what we're talking about when we talk about outside support. That's your hey, cue, Thank you for that beautiful introduction. Uh, I was over here laughing as the clip was playing. 
I'm just, supposed you to know, keep it quiet. <laughs> like, how would, uh, you know, Benu respond to that? Um, but I know I talked to both of you guys, like, after that conversation and, you know, the webinar, like, I had a conversation uh, with my brother. And before um, I knew anything about, you know, the loophole of the 13th Amendment and really trying to understand um, how it had such a mass effect on, you know, mainly people of color, but we know that, like, everybody gets entrapped into the loophole, right? Um, but just I think people need to really focus on, like, when you're looking at, like, freedom, the antithesis of freedom is slavery, right? And not really even putting a color on it, right? If you're not free, then you are enslaved. And as a family member, when I think about the effect that, you know, my loved one being incarcerated has on me, you know, uh, just the access, like the lack of access. And, you know, this affects our financial freedom. We put millions of dollars into DayPay, the Cures, and all these programs, all these companies, you know, they make money off of our pain. And that's one of the main reasons why I got behind these efforts because I understood that, you know, we get to the point where we're desperate. You know, we'll do anything to hear our loved one's voice and vice versa, right? Our loved ones will do anything uh, to just have contact with someone in the outside world. And that, my last point that I wanted to say was I heard an, an interview on another radio show where there was a young man who had just gotten out of the federal prison. Uh, he spoke about being in solitary confinement and just being thankful for being able to hear a fly buzzing in the window pane and saying that that was the only sense of life that he had or contact that he had in two years, right? And so it just really hit home for me how, you know, how desperate we are in these times, right, when our loved ones are going through, you know, for whatever reason they're incarcerated. Like, we are desperate to still have a place in their life and they're desperate to be present, right? And so it's really important that we end slavery, uh, not just because it's the right thing to do, um, but because it's what we have to do. And so I thank Renu and I thank you guys for just being like my mentors and helping me explain it away. Like if Renu wasn't <laughs> in the space, you know, I just want to say that if he wasn't in that space, um, I probably would have had to be the bad person, so I'm glad that he kind of stepped in and was like, you know, I got it. So, <laughs> I intended to keep it anonymous, so I didn't have to put you uh, in that position where he might hear that we broke down his thing, you know what I mean? And then you'd have to yeah, explain it to him. But it is what it is, man. You know, we got to deal with these things anyway. And it's not you that's wrong. It's the person who is the professional, the educator, who came in with incorrect knowledge and provided it as a fact in front of people who were far more aware of that particular circumstance than he was. And that might have bothered him, uh, that you even dare say that you know something he doesn't know. Because I kind of heard that in his responses to Benu when he became condescending with it. Like, what should we talk about, but then should we say it in forms of slavery? And I was thinking to myself, if I was there right now, I would be like, hold up. We're not talking about forms. We're talking about types. And there's only two, legal or illegal. <laughs> That's it. Because, you know, they, they want to dilute it down to f- these forms. Well, 
if you really get to the point, Max, it's always been slavery all over the world. Even minimum wage is wage slavery. Uh, if you work a nine to five, that's a form of slavery. Debt is a form of slavery. And they they go to these, you know, caverns of forms. We're not talking about mm-hmm. that. We're talking about uh, two types, legal and illegal. What is illegal slavery? So, well, sex trafficking is illegal slavery. Child uh, uh, slavery is illegal slavery. All these things where they already have abolished it and they have soldiers and police to fight it. Legal slavery is when the government is doing it right in your face in the light of day according to the law. And the way the 13th Amendment works is the judges don't get the option to say, I'm going to make you a slave. The moment you get convicted, it applies to you. Uh, right. passing the, with, with just, let me give a quick uh, heads up that we got about eight minutes left. So let's condense our next comments and uh, then we'll be ready to finish off our program. So Savannah, you were saying? It was just a quick question. So for either of you guys, what would you guys recommend uh, someone do if they're trying to help someone who's currently incarcerated understand their condition and, you know, uh, what's going on and, and really uh, help them understand how the 13th Amendment plays into, like, their incarceration? Okay, I want to add um, a part of that. Um, okay, um, we have to have a if, if you all are on Twitter, you look at the uh, Jay House Lawyer Speak Twitter account and a couple more accounts that are associated with them, and they're one of the sponsors of the program. It's also an inside-led organization. They are talking about the and uh, the Prison Lives Matter movement that is being led by Brother Kwame Bean Shakur in Indiana and a few other organizations. You'll see that there is an emphasis right now on political or correct education. And that education is going to have to come from the people who know. But the people who know are going to have to put that information in a form that we can get it inside to the guys and educate them about that. And so you're talking about newsletters and whatnot. But the thing I wanted to, to, to emphasize in that is that there are a lot of organizations that talk about, oh, we're sending in books and this and that. We don't need people to be – there's already enough bad information and negative information and BS inside of people's heads. We don't need people sending in Harry Potter books. We don't need people sending in uh, the academy. We have a particular curriculum that we need to get in. In addition, remember, that a lot of people in prison are illiterate. A lot of people are illiterate. So there is a component of this that we're literally going to have to create a curriculum that starts from the second, third grade level, uh, fourth grade level or something on up. And we're going to have to put it in a form. We're going to have to create. I don't know if we're going to have to write some books, some textbooks. I don't know if we're going to have to have a section in the newsletter where we, we, we're we doing the basic building box. But the, the very first letter that they read to the last letter, I'm sorry, the very first alphabet that they read to the last alphabet that they read, it all has to address the problem. We cannot afford to be teaching a lot about the cat in the hat, uh, the uh, Three Blind Mice, we don't have time for that. Everything that we put out, we have to have artists to put out art for people who, who can, can interpret artistically like that. We have to bring our resources and people together and bring all of our skills and talents to the table. There is no one method that we're going to do that, Savannah. We're going to have to use all of our arts, all of our talents, all of our skills, graphic design. So if you're listening, 
and you have those capabilities and you can offer that to the movement, that's what we need and that's how we need it to, to, to be able to bring it to the uh to the movement. And I'll let you answer your um bring your part in, man. Well, I would like to offer a partial solution and give a shout out to Sister Porsche Tiara Taylor out in California. Uh she's one of the lead organizers from the inside out. That's the name of the group, and they have a newsletter that they deliver to the prisoners. I don't. It's not just in California, but nationwide. So I su- would suggest that uh, you reach out to Porsche Tierra Taylor. All that information is available at Abolition Today on our Facebook page. Everything we talked about tonight, including that link, reach out to her and see about getting some words in the newsletter that gets to the people on the inside regularly, um, and maybe potentially creating your own at some point that can be distributed by people who are working from the outside with those people on the inside. Um, like Dennis Febo, prison system and the juvenile detention facilities in New Jersey, all of them will be willing to distribute some material. And you guys have the capabilities and the talents to make it happen. So uh, I'll go ahead and uh, pass the mic uh, for the next five minutes to uh, uh, our guests and Savannah, uh, who is here. Is anything else you want to go over before we get into our final segments? Well, just um, I'm gonna say what I want to say briefly now. Let Savannah close the take this final statement. Uh, people, please be mindful. You know, this is not to be mean. This is not to be rude. This is just to be. You know, we don't have time for anything else. We understand that certain people already have resources and material. If you got some, turn the material over to us, and we'll decide. You know, what I'm saying what what you know, what I'm saying what we need to have to introduce. Let the people on the inside lead. You know, the, you're not helping when you pull up and say, well, I got this, I got this, I got this. Just pull up and, 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 and say, "Don't." I'm sorry, don't pull up and say, I got this, I got this, this is what y'all need to do. We don't need that. Just pull up and let us know what you got to offer, and then we'll let you know how to best use that um, to, to aid and promote this struggle because we're the experts. We, you know what I'm saying, we're not, we can't afford to, I mean, we have to we have to do this. The guys on the inside have to do it. The people on the outside can support, but the guys on the inside have to do it. The last thing I have another call by the way too. Okay, letting you know somebody in. Let's go ahead and bring the caller on. Well, you did say there was the last thing that you wanted to say. I wanted to get people to understand that on the inside, we're fighting for our life. Yeah, we want our freedom. But right now we're fighting for our life because the system is 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 threatening our lives. They already got our freedom, so we're fighting for our lives right now. And so, in that fight for our lives, people are going to have to be respectful of the fact that these are our lives that we're fighting for. We'll let you know what we need. Don't come and tell us that what you're trying to you know what I'm saying. We'll let you know what we need because. We're fighting for our lives right now. We're not fighting for credibility. We're not fighting for status. We're not fighting for money. We're fighting for our lives. We can let you know what we need when it comes to that. And then I'll I'll yield with that right there. All right. Uh, 3075, you are with us on Abolition Today. State your name. Uh, Where are you calling from and your question or comment? Uh, My name is Brother Ishmael. I'm calling from Texas. Peace, Ishmael. uh, I just want to... Hey, I just peace. I just wanted to first say uh, to Brother Banu and uh, Savannah, and also to you, Max. It's been a joy listening to y'all tonight. And um, the only thing I wanted to—I'm uh, also calling from solitary confinement. 
Um, beginning, beginning tomorrow, um, I start my 23rd consecutive calendar year incarcerated in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And um, I was just sitting here listening to the things that that professor said on that clip. And uh, I know for the sake of time, I just want to tie all this in real quick. Anybody that really want to truly understand how slavery never ended with the, uh, the issue of the Emancipation Proclamation in Texas, there's a book called Texas Tough by a guy by the name of Robert Perkerson. And he did an excellent job at outlining how Texas basically rolled over the whole slavery system into a prison system when um, Abraham Lincoln uh, issued the Emancipation Proclamation and a year later after they tried to implement it in Texas. And uh, it's very detailed. And uh, based off of my experience and my uh, investigation, it's very accurate. And uh, anybody that wants that information or that, that knowledge, go ahead and uh, purchase that book. It's called Texas Tough. And it's, it's written by a guy by the name of Robert Perkinson. And it's very accurate, man. And uh, I wish for the sake of time I had a little bit more time to turn in, uh, chime in about how slavery actually exists here in Texas on a wide scale. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, can give vivid, I can give vivid examples of that. But, um, you know, if, if you could have the chance to pick up that book, or uh, like uh, Brother Banu was talking about, uh, send that book to another prisoner. Help him mm-hmm. with his understanding of what's going on. Because uh, that book there really is accurate, and it helps me. It helped me understand exactly what's going on here in Texas, man. And uh, I'm gonna end with this quick story. I was sitting in the day room one day, and uh, a guard was walking around. He was an African guard, African American guard, and he was walking around the day room con- conducting the count. And every single prisoner that he walked to, he was expecting for that prisoner to stand up and state his name and tell him where he lived at. And I thought that was ridiculous. And so when he got to me, I refused to stand up. And uh, he said, hey, man, are you going to stand up? And I said, stand up for what? what? What's the reason for me standing up? You're just conducting the count. I can tell you where, where I live at sitting down. He said, well, it's out of respect. And I said, out of respect? He said, yeah, not for me, but for the uniform." All right, this is the African-American guard telling me this. Now, if he read that book by Robert Ferguson, Texas Tough, or he knows his history, he understands that he's wearing the Confederate Army uniform in 2021 here in the state of Texas. The prison guards in the state of Texas, the uniform that they wear is the exact uniform that the Confederate Army wore, right? And he had the audacity to ask me to stand up and respect that. And uh, it was strange how y'all were talking about the Sugar Land 95. And I was just uh, reading about that story and actually putting the article together about that story, about the Sugar Land 95. And here comes this African-American guard that wants me to stand up and respect his uniform. So uh, you can kind of imagine, uh, we probably are family friendly here, so I ain't going to say what I told him. But uh, Ishmael. Uh, we appreciate it, brother. But I, I do got to bring it to a close. Uh, we'll come to our okay. final couple of minutes. And I got to give a shout out to my sponsors. But I would like to invite you to come to Live from the Plantation here on AbolitionToday.org on Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern. And also uh, stay with us at Abolition Today every week, Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we have the lines open and we want to hear more from you. Uh, I want to give a Thank big you. shout out. 
Thank you, brother. I want to give a big shout out to our guest tonight, brother Ben, uh, Benu Hannibal Rod's son, my brother. Uh, I appreciate everything uh, that you dropped for us tonight, all the wisdom and experience and insight that you possess. And as I said, you are a superhero. Same thing for my sister Savannah Eldridge out there getting the damn thing done in Texas, despite people trying to pee on her parade. It ain't happening with the superheroes. And Brother Ishmael, we appreciate you calling in as well. Uh, Our sponsors for tonight's program and uh, all year has been Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, SAMA Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Covey Abolitionist Center, and Prismatic Dreams. We are going to start tonight's Bridging the Gap with part one of two, featuring Black Panther himself, Chadwick Boseman, reading from the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. Tonight in part one, he explains his parental lineage and the inhumane conditions within a crime against humanity that brought him into being. That will be followed by a classic song, which I will leave unannounced. You'll know it when you hear it. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube page for all the news, information, and music you hear on this program, youtube.com slash abolition today. Also remember to join the movement at abolishslavery.us to become a part of the solution. We'll be back January 17th with special guest host Johanan Elijah. And for those who don't know, as I said earlier, Johanan, Scotty, uh, Yusuf, and myself were hosts back from the New Abolitionist Radio days on the Black Talk Radio Network for seven years. And much of the abolitionist movement began right there. I'm looking forward to hearing his now versus then perspective on the movement's growth and direction. So until next week, remember to think of abolition today. Peace. Abolition today. Narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. Chapter 1. I was born in Tuckahoe, near Hillsborough, and about 12 miles from Easton in Talbot County, Maryland. I have no accurate knowledge of my age, never having seen any authentic record containing it. By far, the larger part of the slaves know as little of their ages as horses know of theirs and it is the wish of most masters within my knowledge to keep their slaves thus ignorant. I do not remember to have ever met a slave who could tell of his birthday. They seldom come nearer to it than planting time, harvest time, cherry time, spring time, or fall time. A want of information concerning my own was a source of unhappiness to me even during childhood. The white children could tell their ages. I could not tell why I ought to be deprived of the same privilege. I was not allowed to make any inquiries of my master concerning it. He deemed all such inquiries on the part of a slave improper and impertinent and evidence of a restless spirit. The nearest estimate I can give makes me now between 27 and 28 years of age. I come to this from hearing my master say sometime during 1835, I was about 17 years old. My mother was named Harriet Bailey. She was the daughter of Isaac and Betsy Bailey, both colored and quite dark. My mother was of a darker complexion than either my grandmother or grandfather. My father was a white man, 
He was admitted to be such by all I ever heard speak of my parentage. The opinion was also whispered that my master was my father, but of the correctness of this opinion I know nothing. The means of knowing was withheld from me. My mother and I were separated when I was but an infant, before I knew her as my mother. It is a common custom in the part of Maryland from which I ran away to part children from their mothers at a very early age. Frequently, before the child has reached its 12th month, its mother is taken from it and hired out on some farm a considerable distance off, and the child is placed under the care of an old woman, too old for field labor. For what this separation is done, I do not know, unless it be to hinder the development of the child's affection toward its mother and to blunt and destroy the natural affection of the mother for the child. This is the inevitable result. I never saw my mother to know her as such more than four or five times in my life. And each of these times was very short in duration and at night. She was hired by a Mr. Stewart who lived about 12 miles from my home. She made her journeys to see me in the night, traveling the whole distance on foot after the performance of her day's work. She was a field hand, and a whipping is the penalty of not being in the field at sunrise unless a slave has special permission from his or her master to the contrary, a permission which they seldom get, and one that gives to him that gives it the proud name of being a kind master. I do not recollect of ever seeing my mother by the light of day. She was with me in the night. She would lie down with me and get me to sleep. Long before I waked, she was gone. Very little communication ever took place between us. Death soon ended what little we could have while she lived and with it her hardships and suffering. She died when I was about seven years old on one of my master's farms near Lee's Mill. I was not allowed to be present during her illness, at her death or burial. She was gone long before I knew anything about it. Never having enjoyed to any considerable extent her soothing presence, her tender and watchful care, I received the tidings of her death with much the same emotions I should have probably felt at the death of a stranger. Called thus suddenly away, she left me without the slightest intimation of who my father was. The whisper that my master was my father may or may not be true, and true or false, it is of but little consequence to my purpose, whilst the fact remains in all its glaring odiousness that slaveholders have ordained and by law established that the children of slave women shall in all cases follow the condition of their mothers. And this is done too obviously to administer to their own lusts and make a gratification of their wicked desires profitable as well as pleasurable. For by this cunning arrangement, the slaveholder, in cases not a few, sustains to his slaves the double relation of master and father. I know of such cases. And it is worthy of remark that such slaves invariably suffer greater hardships and have more to contend with than others. They are, in the first place, a constant offense to their mistress. She is ever disposed 
to find fault with them. They can seldom do anything to please her. She is never better pleased than when she sees them under the lash, especially when she suspects her husband of showing to his mulatto children favors which he withholds from his black slaves. The master is frequently compelled to sell this class of his slaves out of deference to the feeling of his white wife, and cruel as the deed may strike anyone to be for a man to sell his own children to human fleshmongers, it is often the dictate of humanity for him to do so. For unless he does this, he must not only whip them himself, but must stand by and see one white son tie up his brother of but few shades, darker complexion than himself, and ply the gory lash to his naked back. And if he lifts one word of disapproval, it is set down to parental partiality and only makes a bad matter worse, both for himself and the slave who he would protect and defend. Every year brings with it multitudes of this class of slaves. It was the third of September That day I'll always remember Yes, I will Cause that was the day That my daddy died Yeah I never got a chance to see again Never heard nothing But bad things about him Mama, I'm depending on you To tell me the truth Mama just hung her head and said, son, Bumble, Bumble, Rolling Stone, my son, wherever he laid happy was his home. And when he died, I was alone. Now listen to me, Bumble, Bumble, Rolling Stone, uh-huh. wherever he laid happy was his home. Abolition. 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 